I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broken in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband or significant other and substantially more than you, which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for? Or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month, or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? We need to talk about the impact of debt, but also, more importantly, how to get out of debt. And I need you to come forward to make this podcast possible. Welcome to The Brock Architect. You will hear from real architects with very real problems and maybe some will offer some real solutions so that you never become a broke architect please share subscribe and comment to support the channel i have with me today an architect who is a director at a northwest architecture practice which has been established for over 20 years and focuses on residential work. And uh, firstly, I just want to say to you, um, you are anonymous uh, this evening, um, but um, I just wanted to welcome you to the Brock Architect podcast. And the first thing I just wanted to ask you today is, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. Um, thank you as well. Um, it's a pleasure to be involved, really. Wonderful, wonderful. I just wanted to start my, my sort of first question to you really is just I just want to get an understanding of uh, your background when you were sort of growing up. Um, it's relatively typical for most other architects I've spoken to really. I went to school, played sport, uh, rugby for myself as a two left feet. Um, so my football was never great. Uh, I had a job on the side uh, from paper rounds as young as 14. Um, and as I aged, I moved into working in bars, restaurants, um, summers, a couple of summers, I worked in factory floors of furniture, of a furniture company, um, and Manchester University, scanning work into their online library. So I had a job of sorts throughout most of my younger life around school and college. Um, I achieved GCSEs. Um, I've got A-levels in maths, art mm. and economics, oh, uh, wow. AS-levels in physics and chemistry. I've got siblings. Uh, both my parents worked throughout most of my life. Uh, one was an accountant, the other in teaching. Um, I'd probably say I was pretty fortunate uh, growing up. Minimal worries, no horror stories, but sadly no lottery <laughs> wins either. Um, nothing massively abnormal. No, fantastic. We, well, we do share something in common because my uh, one of my siblings is an accountant, so that that's uh, interesting. <laughs> Um, okay, well, let, let's let's get into, um, you know, how how did you actually get into architecture? What did you, why did you, 
want to become an architect? I guess the question is. Well, so growing up, um, you, you get older, you try and focus on a career. Um, you know, what avenue is going to take you down? And for me, I wanted something that would challenge me intellectually, but also was creative. Um, like many others of my area growing up with Lego, the natural go-to for architectural initiation. Um, I was also brought up with a fascination of how things work. Uh, I had grandparents, one was a mechanical and one was a chemical engineer. Um, so I was quite used to you know, having a technical and science talk when I was staying over with those with them. Um, you could say from a young age, learning how to like rebuild my bicycle, um, basic combustion engine. Um, I built one of those with my grandparents. Um, later on, you know, how to fix my car cards on the table it probably needed a lot more work <laughs> than i like to admit <laughs> um however to hit my goal uh, for a creative career i wanted to channel like more of my art into that world um in my early teens i learned my neighbor was an architect uh, he predominantly worked predominantly worked on residential projects and is well known or was well known locally for his artistic approach to projects uh, seeing him use his creative side but also understand the construction elements inspired me um, I'd probably say that uh, this is where I decided architecture could be a career path for me. Um, from my point, my interest in buildings, the profession of architecture, I guess, evolved, uh, predominantly egged on by an internal dream after seeing what my neighbour had done of oh. you know, saying, I created something physical, uh, being proud of something that other people appreciated and uh, improving the way people live, work, travel to a point. It, it, it then brings me naturally on to the sort of question is, before you attended university to study architecture, what was your perception of architecture and pay? And did you think it was highly paid? Honestly, um, I'd say also naively, um, I didn't look at pay um, or salary levels back then. Uh, just, I kind of got off what I'd seen around me. Uh, my understanding of a standard of living of an architect based upon you know, I had two architects living on the road I grew up on. Um, it was an area I've always, and so I still believe now, is thought of as you know, a decent area, nice area to grow up in. Um, both of them had semi-detached period properties. Uh, they had children. They had, you know, they both had cars. Um, you know, I wasn't expecting it to be easy. I saw they, they worked long hours. They worked hard. Um, which, but that was never something I'd ever been shy of. So I'd hope to would provide a, a life of sorts of, that would be relatively comfortable for me to have a family when I become, became of age. Um, naturally, I never expected a, a lifestyle portrayed in some of the movies. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought it would be sufficient to put a roof over my head in, in many respects. A lot of people answer similar questions that don't necessarily look into the salaries when you're starting out. I didn't. So I, I'm like, I'm on the same page as, as you. And I'm really interested in, you know, what sort of debt you had, but also what sort of salary you had. And, you know, was it, <laughs> did it enable you in any way to kind of pay off that any of that university debt? Well, um, I had the typical university debts from living in another city and university fees. Though, in many ways, I was quite fortunate in that respect, as well as the university I attended was about £2,000 a year rather than the just over £3,000 a year that it was for most people at the time and nowhere near the living costs or the £9,000 a year annual salary we have now. 
However, due to this, either way, <laughs> finishing undergrad, I did need a job of some sort, hopefully in architecture. So I kind of progressed on that mindset. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to move back in with family during my year out after my undergrad qualification, which definitely made my life a lot easier than trying to rent somewhere. My undergrad was during the fall of the 0809 economic crash. Oh, wow. Uh, off the top of my head, but I just remember it wasn't wasn't great. <laughs> so getting work wasn't easy. Very few of my peers who wanted to continue with architecture after undergrad managed to get placements. After you know a, a few hundred CVs across Manchester and Leeds, walk-ins to drop off physical copies. You know, as everyone does, Google the people you want to bump into. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would, did no luck really for myself, but I did end up working at a restaurant locally meeting the upside meeting lots of people bumped into and got on well with a local architect who was at the age of retirement and he needed a second pair of hands and in return would mentor me so in many ways i landed on my feet quite fortunately yeah um i've been to a point disarmed and disillusioned at university with a lack of learning applicable to reality and you know getting on with uh, this architect that had a you know a fountain of knowledge really um, it reignited my passion and it made me feel like I was working back towards that career I'd set my goal on. Worked on dated copies of AutoCAD, drawing boards, sketches. The experience was brilliant. I had no question was too naive or basic, and I had a lot of them. I produced planning drawings, completed applications, I learned construction details, building control drawing packages, um, you know, learning how basic structures were built. And I was involved yeah. in all the meetings with clients and consultants. Through all of this, the pot was pretty empty and you know, we right. was totally as well as learning architecture and how to, in many ways, how to work and run the business, um, even at that young stage. I saw the books, I knew what was in the pot. So yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a, a few beers and lunch on Friday and I continued working nights and weekends in bars and restaurants. But I look back on it, I was fortunate enough that I could stay with parents. Not many people could have done you know what i was fortunate enough to be able to do the, my goal was that this experience like a lot of my peers who hadn't managed to get any at all was brilliant and it would really aid uh, my master's qualification and future you know probability of getting a job after completing my master's i you know i fell back on a lot of this experience and it was very worthwhile and it, i feel it paid off i still had the en endless cving but uh, I was employed by a brilliant small firm just outside the city centre, um, and I was on about fifteen and a half thousand pounds a year, which doesn't sound like a lot nowadays. But no. compared to compared to working nights in a restaurant, it was still also on a similar keel to what I knew my other friends were coming out of university with and getting jobs at. I stayed living with parents again, and the salary kind of touch the sides of paying off the debt for a period until I've, you know, worked my way up. No, it's, uh, it's, um, I, I love some of the things that you said there. Well, I've just come on before I go into my next question, you know, having that mentor that spent time with you, because I think it's often a, it's often a criticism that, um, is, is, you know, it's sort of directed even even now with the RIBA where they're saying, you know, this this sort of gap between you leaving university and you getting that yeah. education and then coming into practice. You know, I think it's 
you can't always blame everything on the universities, you know, to, 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 to learn it. So what you do have to put in place is to have a practice where you have a really good mentor. And, I, you know, I firmly, as you know, sort of believe in that. And, you know, you, you've risen into practice. You're a director of a practice. You know, my next question really is, do you believe your clients really understand what architects do? Well, <laughs> big uh, question. Firstly, go on. It's a good one. Uh, firstly, and also working predominantly in the residential sector, we choice collectively as a, as a as a company, uh, I think we're quite lucky. We get a lot of repeat clients who do understand the value uh, a quality of architect can bring to a project. Mm. Um, we still have a collection of new clients, many who have never commissioned an architect before, so do require some handholding and. A deeper explanation of what we do and how we deliver. I have learned while working my way up, explaining what, how, why we do what we do, and what a client perceives as a solution to their problem may only be resolved by exploring multiple options. We do try and explain that our type and level of service would not normally be provided by non-architects. Um, we also have to explain the importance and requirements of other consultants, and that these aren't covered by our fees nowadays. Right. Um, such as planning, heritage, project dependent, obviously. Also need for engineers and M&E consultants, as these are needed for most projects to achieve building control approval and deliver a project on site, especially after planning. With the current fluctuations in the economy, climate, we recommend a QS is appointed by a client for most projects. In the end, we're really trying to protect the client themselves uh, to get them the outcome they want in turn, and in turn protect our reputation and get paid. A good example uh, is a loft conservation we recently looked at. Uh, the clients informed us that we received a few quotes from others to convert the loft into a four bedroom and wanted us to quote, uh, see, see what we could do for him. As we were recommended by one of his friends, he had it in his head that there was only one place for his new staircase oh. and that this was through the existing bedroom. I popped up into the loft which was a hipped roof and informed him that once the joists had been upgraded and the insulation added to the rafters along the, the new dormer, he'd be lucky if he got a single bedroom. And he was understandably disappointed, but also annoyed that no one else had informed him of how small the bedroom and space would be once complete. Um, and he thought from that, the only option was to sell the house and move to a larger property, which his wife was very reluctant to do. To make a long story short, I asked that he give me a few days to think about it, then I'd come back with a solution, you know, at risk as a lot of us architects and yeah. designers do nowadays. And just a few weeks later, we submitted a PD application for a two-story rear extension. We relocated the stairs to in the new extension, moved the family bathroom to where the old staircase was and put a first floor for a new double bedroom to the extension. His wife was happy. They got an extended kitchen and we put the utility in the home office in the hallway. Price-wise, it was about 20% more than what he wanted to spend. But it's future-proofed his house, so he was very happy as a client. And he had no issue paying the fees as he realised what we do as architects. And the benefit that we brought to that project as a whole. We had the same situation with the opposite outcome. We have, you know, worked at risk. Yeah. Done design sketches, passed over knowledge of how we think something could be done, something could be delivered. The client gets the sketch and goes, right, well, I know someone cheaper that can draw this up and run away with it. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's you, know, but we have to be 
you know, in it to win it. We've got to show that we do know what we're doing in order to win the work a lot of the time in the first place. Yeah. No, th- th- I think that's a great example of where the architect can add, you know, such real value. The person hadn't seen an architect before. He'd seen, he'd seen you, you know, you, and then you, you kind of looked at it and analysed it and really sort of thought about how best to, um, how, how, how best to resolve the issue, but obviously discussed that it would, you know, mean a sort of an increasing cost, but the benefits are great. So I'm, I'm just, I'm so glad that you gave an example like that. That's brilliant. Whose fault did you think this 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 is? Who's you know is it is it our fault for um these issues? Well, uh, I'd say it's a collection of issues really. Yeah. Uh, without pointing any fingers particularly, like how how we're portrayed in the media and films is just producing images at high fees in fancy studios just isn't real. Yeah. Uh, doesn't doesn't make us look great. Um, the article by Giles Corrin was pretty insulting and damaging oh. impression in the Times. Um, I must say, George Clark as an architect and Kevin McLeod on Grand Designs have been a positive light. Um, and some of the projects not always liked by the general public because architecture, like art, it's subjective, not objective. Um, but throughout what they've done has given some understanding to the public of what an architect would does, but also what they must know and understand. I feel especially in the residential sector, much of our knowledge isn't really valued by the public and by some of the other professions. Um, and it's generally assumed, you know, we get high fees for pretty pictures, which, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just twists the knife a bit there. Um, I feel we could do with being better supported by the RIBA, if I'm honest. For instance, anyone can try and draw up a, up a proposal you know, back of a fag packet in the pub yeah. and submit this to planning. No overheads, no insurance, nothing. Like Restricting this would improve planning delays and the quality of residential design, but also would show the public that we are qualified for a reason. If it's something that anyone should be allowed to do, you know, why do we spend seven years training? Like limit it to train professionals who have the requirement that an architect must sign off a project, for example, for it to be submitted. Involve you know, technologists and technicians in this true as well, like if they have the experience to do this. Yeah. Collectively, the level of fees that are paid currently, it's affecting all of us. Like This would also, I feel, protect clients, but also it would improve the retention of chartered architects within the RIBA. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more there. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I think the perception is that architects are are expensive but you know you should always factor that with uh well architects are value for money and that's what we always want to portray so i'm gonna i'm gonna come on to talking about fees i'm just gonna say well do the fees that you quote allow you to make a profit which will sustain investment and growth within your practice i know it's a big question it's a personal question is is that happening in sort of 2023 or 2022 well, it's it's a difficult one to answer. Uh, if everything goes to plan, yes, we you know we make a reasonable profit, but it rarely happens at present. Uh, we're finding the main hurdle is the amount of time it's now taking to achieve planning approval. Some local authorities are still taking four months just to validate an application, during which you know clients start changing the design or external pop forces play a part. Liz Truss's mini 
budget put a complete hold on three of our projects oh. you know once an application then does get validated we're up against uh, from our experience currently planning and conservation officers who have they've, they've taken on a, a turn to anti-development rather than pro-development so many projects ended up two or three iterations or even an appeal process to go through prior to receiving a, any formal approval most of our profit i can believe most of the companies I speak to in the design world is located in the scheme design and the planning stage. Uh, so this additional time, is it just eats into it. I guess this applies for predominantly the larger projects, but we struggle with the smaller ones too, competing then again also with no insurance, no overheads and no, no non-architects. And yeah. with their fees, we just, we really struggle to compete. Recently, I've attended a site with a potential client wanting a rear extension, speaking to uh, local QSs, a rear extension in the northwest is around £300 per square foot in the current climate. We went to meet him, discussed, it, discussed his proposal and estimated his build cost based on a very, very loose estimate. It's around £200,000 based on the RBA fee scales that would once have been a fee of in the region of 12%. So deliver, delivery from preparation briefing through to handover would be in the region of £24,000. If you consider a lot, contractors will take a project on of that size nowadays on site. So initial brief, full, you know, full building regulation submission through that is all about 60% of the total fee. So you'll get up just over £14,000 yeah. off the top of my head. Our fees, like we're not, they're not that high, but the client asks us to compete with another quote he's had from an non-architect of 3500 I don't really know. There's not much more to say there, but you know, competing at that level, it's just not achievable. Yeah, it's a race to the bottom, isn't yeah. it? Completely. That's a difficult one to solve. I mean, it really is a difficult one to solve. The only thing I can say is it's come. It comes back to value and maybe selling our value. That that's maybe something um you know you you want to discuss. But you know, do clients often tell you? You know, you've mentioned you know, that they can get it cheaper and, and people are undercutting um, your overheads. People are undercutting you who are not insured, they're not architects, they're not qualified. They don't have your overheads. So, you know, are you are you getting this from clients sort of generally um, all the time? Yeah, we do know clients that can, you know, they've come out to us and said they can get it cheaper. It is usually by, as you say, non-architects. They have no or minimal overheads we can assume limited to no pi mm. and we can't compete with those fees uh, we've asked compete on a few jobs recently we've broken the fee down it's come out in the region of 30 pounds per hour uh, with you know running a practice having overheads including insurance software licenses business rates etc before considering salaries like we just can't compete though on the flip side you know we do watch some of these applications on planning portals. You know, we've seen the submissions that they've ended up with and they'll, you know, we can look at and we can assess them from that point and think, well, they're going to be challenging or impossible to build some of them. Some of them have taken so much out of the existing structure to make it open plan that the amount of steel would have put it massively over budget. So, you know, with someone we've met, we've discussed it, they said we've charged too much money and I'm thinking, well, when this goes on site, yeah. The engineers say this is this is it's not going to work. You know, there's a few recently we've recommended permitted development applications, and they've gone with someone cheaper, which is fair enough. 
Um, but then we've kept an eye on this and seen the permitted development application criteria just not being met. Um, there was one the other day that we kept an eye on for a little while and it was declined and it just didn't meet basic permitted development criteria. There's also quite a few nowadays, especially with the increase in building regulation requirements that yes, they may achieve planning, but they don't then meet building it. So, you know, we have to design technically as well as architecturally to a point. Going back to what I mentioned earlier, it'd be great if the RMA would step up and try to protect architects and our surrounding disciplines in a way, you know, openly setting fees, have architects compete on quality, staying unless qualified, you know, you can't submit certain applications or, you know, someone can do the drawings, but it then needs to be assessed by a professional. Mm. Um, I, there might be a minor fee for this because they'll be able to be covered by their PI. I believe this will you know, protect clients from poor, unachievable bills and improve the planning process. At the end of the day, like we, majority of us have trained for many years you know, through university and then in practice to you know, design constructible buildings. And we, some of us do feel that we're up against people that are doing sketches that are being paid for and they're not buildable, but it's not protecting us, but it's not protecting the clients out there as well, um, which is a concern of both sides. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think I think what you said there is really critically important. I, I saw the, well, I heard the reference to the RIBA and um, a criticism. I think many people have, have, have um, say, you know, said that and it, you know, it would give some form of protection to qualified architects and it's all coming it's all coming back to value that architects can give in terms of regulations so you know following grenfell regulations have changed and the responsibilities again all seem to be falling on the architects and it, it's just interesting to see you know what effect is this having on your business it may be maybe early in the in the process but um you know is it having an effect on your business and uh, the changes to the regulations um, and maybe also on you personally? Well, yeah, the responsibilities have drastically increased, but it, in turn, so the client demands um, and the project demands as a whole, um, the PI fees have increased and the stress of general projects in turn therefore has increased. Um, yet speaking to other firms as well as our own, we haven't seen our fees increase in the past. Like we used to work, we used to issue architect certificates for free, you know, part of the completion package per project. And we moved away from this and informed clients that if they, they'll require from now on an independent warranty, as most large warranty providers remove themselves from the bespoke residential sector. And um, those that do remain are charging, you know, up to 30,000 pounds for a project over the construction value of a million. You know, I can see the same happening with the role of principal designer under the new regulations. They'll have to sign off projects and take responsibility for it for the future. If we want that liability, we, we need to be compensated for it. But if we were to include this in our initial fee, you know, it would be doubtful if we get any projects at all. For us, it makes sense we just drop that part of the role and the client plays individual contractors for those roles directly to be honest same same goes for contractors administrator with all the new changes with the building regulations it's going to be a nightmare to sign off practical completion certificates with the increased liability unless the fees reflect it 
Why do clients want to negotiate your fees lower, yet they'll never do this with a solicitor? Oh. <laughs> uh, I feel they, they don't argue with solicitors. A majority of solicitors are, well, they're known as expensive, but they're responsive to emergency. I know this from experience professionally and privately. Mm. At the same time, it's, it's generally accepted. You can't get another profession to do the role of a solicitor. You want a specialist in that field to guide you, know, you down that road uh, and get the best result possible. Sadly, as architects, especially in the residential sector, as I've mentioned before, I just don't feel the public see that. Um, I think that many of them think that you know anyone can draw a pretty picture and you know, there's no protection from the powers that be to prevent that. And yes, there's some brilliant draftsmen and, and women out there that can, can do and deliver the job, but and have the knowledge. As architects, it's our role to do that and protect that service in a way. If it was, you know, if our position was protected in some way and there was set fees in a, in a, in a mentality, it may remove this undercutting mentality to race to the bottom, which I currently feel like we're involved in. I'd also feel that if we had open, well, I think architects collectively aren't open about fees anymore. I think if it was a set fee or we were more open about fees, we'd be a more solidified body within the industry if fees were set at a minimum, portraying a minimum level experience and qualification, I feel our, the respect would come back maybe a bit. You know, if we're deemed as being, we are required for this service and we are needed for this service, maybe yeah. we'll be seen as needed for the service. I know if I, I know if I have a brain, something wrong with my brain, I'm going to go to a specialist doctor. I'm not going to go to a... I'm not going to go to a non-qualified person, so I'll just leave it. I'll leave it at that. Let's look at what is the current situation then with um, planning authorities, uh, because this is always a really, especially with residential um, architects, you know, and getting approvals. So we're talking here about, you know, delay, which causes you to move to the next stage and also getting paid, you know, getting paid because, you know, if you don't get planning generally, um, you know, you can't you can't get that next chunk of money to get it onto onto site. So, what's the current situation with planning where you are anyway? Sure. Well, a majority of architects I speak to, including ourselves, we're now paid upon submission, made due to the delays in planning. Um, we designed the proposal to agree, tailoring it with our expertise to be the best chance of approval, but it's still a gamble depending on the officer and their intended design flair. Some planning officers, I can yeah. openly admit, they're brilliant, genuinely. We, if we take the criteria uh, in the drawings, have a, have a minor discussion about the project and the client's brief, you know, it sails through, it's great. Others we've worked with design, they, they have a design idea. <laughs> They want to run with it <laughs> um, and they don't have a concept for delays, additional costs or not really knowing the client's brief either. I've spoken to a practice who recently revised their T's and C's and in, increased, well, increased their stage payments um, as they're nearly 40% of their annual income tied up in one planning authority wow. due to delays. It's having a huge impact upon the practice. A few of our local councils are experiencing delays, which does frustrate their clients and has had an impact upon development and investment into these areas. This has had a knock-on effect upon our workload, naturally. The worst 
of which I can notice expecting the usual eight weeks planning process to be delayed by up to four months. And that's for the application to reach a case officer. Wow. Uh, once allocated, the case officer will then make an initial assessment and we'll contact, contact well, either ourselves, the agent or the client within two weeks and provide an update with an agreed extension of time. We still have some projects that have met this 24 week minimum, however most are taking much longer to reach a decision. And this trust, this also has a knock on effect. It throws out a majority of the budget estimates as in two months, it can fluctuate a bit, but after six months in the current economic condition, price fluctuations are crazy. And, and cash flow as well, which your architects um, in the residential sector and well, all architects are uh, needed. You know, you need that cash flow coming in and horrified to hear about the uh, one practice is uh, tied up with 40% of their um, their projects uh, in the planning phase. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that's pretty, it's pretty bad. So, so what do you want the RIBA to support you um, with? As I understand, you know, you personally are not an, an, an RIBA member, is that correct? I'm an RBA chartered member, but the practice is no longer right. Uh, Sorry, RBA practice. Right. For us, I think architecture has changed as a profession in the years since I started in it, at least. Especially with the new building regulation requirements, adding the need for a lot of front-end technical understanding, uh, design being required at a planning stage. And I just don't feel we're well represented. Our skill, knowledge, desire to design is limited by planning guides and close some well some close-minded officers and I feel we have to bow down to them like where's the RIBA depending on creativity and qualifications I've, I've more recently emailed them about a proposed design guide that I'm genuinely concerned about along with other local architects because I'm asking for advice basically to see who who to seek advice in the RIBA from for support but there's been no response and the outcome of this design guide will in my eyes, crucify the profession in the areas that um, it's going to be involved in. Like it, it even conflicts with building regulations. So, you know, we get something to hit their criteria. If we want to build it, it you know, it voids the planning because it they don't go and well, they don't work together. Wow. Um, I feel for our responsibilities, as I touched on previously, like PI software fees, the amount we must understand and deliver. They just keep increasing and I'm yet yeah, I'm watching us as an industry, an architectural industry, race to the bottom. Um, the new limitations period under DPA will jump from six to 30 years. Where's the RIBA setting a standard that we are a profession worthy of minimum payments, even if just to cover the PI increase? I'm watching films being outbid on projects by non-architects at price they just can't compete with. Uh, so we collectively are having to streamline um, anything that isn't vital to our firms is being stripped. Uh, I, I love the idea of being RIBA. Like, I'm just finding it feel, I just feel it, yeah, it adds further liability without much of a reward from my experience. And as a paying chartered individual, like, I can't even use their free tool. I have to be a chartered uh, practice as well. And for me um, and a few other local architects that I still am in touch with, the Federation of Small Businesses is cheaper it's more accessible and more diverse to mix with potential clients providing legal support among other things as as an architectural industry i feel we're struggling and rather than being a collective under the riba umbrella i feel a lot of us 
are out in the cold against each other and non-architect. It'd be great if the public chose an architect based on a pig's experience and, export and their portfolio. Naturally, in the world we live in, most will go for the cheapest, not fully understanding the service that we would provide for them. The RPA has a role to play in boosting us back up again in many ways. Explaining them benefits to clients and, and understanding where why we're worth what we're worth and you know why it's worth paying i guess the extra fee would would be helpful and and give you uh more funds to uh to help you know join join the organization again and it's um i guess leading leading on to the next question is you know what are the main barriers to getting paid on projects because i know from my 20 two years in the industry they're getting paid and having that cash flow is is absolutely critical so i'm just interested you know from your perspective residential practice you know what are them barriers to getting paid well i feel there's two factors really here i think touching on the previous questions it's getting the job in the first place without being undercut and showing the value we add when the client is happy they like the proposal we explain the reasoning of how it meets the brief and what we've tweaked to ensure that it meets planning policy and outline building regulations, etc. And then they get the final invoice for the RIBA stage, and which is the calculation being set out in the signed fee quote based upon an approximate build cost or a QS that's been appointed and given an estimate. And then, you know, all of a sudden they say, oh, I'm not sure about paying all that. So I think a lot of firms like ourselves do put in, you know, we divide that fee into stage payments throughout each each RIBA stage, bi-monthly or monthly, depending on the client project size, etc. Going legal, I feel, is a last resort, but others we speak to have also had to start on in certain cases. We've considered initial percentage invoice price prior to work commencing, as well as monthly and bi-monthly invoices at each instructed stage. But we do find there's a race to the bottom which many firms can't compete in. Uh, we've considered requesting a percentage fee up front. However, mm. few firms few firms do this. So we believe we'd lose work by asking for this in a, such an early stage before having proved our worth in a way. It's all very much it's the fear of losing the client, which is a challenge. With all all the other factors, it's proving that we're worth it yeah. and still being undercut by someone that will just come in and say, I'll do it for less, architect or non-architect. Historically, I feel we've been paid for services provided once we've delivered these services and passed over the intellectual knowledge. We have paid the balance minus instalments. However, over the last couple of years, we, like many others I've spoken to, across other industries as well, have found non-payers becoming more of an issue, more than ever before. And there's no kill switch. There's no don't pay, we'll take it away in architecture. The client objects, you know, we can try and... Um, negotiate it and you know, show the value added, show the knowledge we passed over. But at the end of the day, if they have the drawings, or even not the final drawings, but you know, through the concept design stages, they've got the development of drawings, they've got the knowledge, they've got the information already. So we can either settle or go legal on them. But the negative impact of that is the negative press, like the points of views then circulate in the area could risk lose us more work. Like the, a lot of the projects are brilliant, but it can be, and it can feel like treading on a tightrope at times, client dependent. Oh, 
Well, there's a lot of there's a lot in there to digest. Uh, absolutely. Follow up question to that is: What are the barriers for more architects to work together as a collective and challenge the planning authorities on issues such as poor application process and also being more subjective and not so objective? So we've had this recently. Um, like. Not all architects in area will team up. There's always other architects from outside the area that can swoop in as many, many architects work across large areas. Um, there's always one or two who won't join a collective. Um, as we now we compete on everything we can. Mm. Um, like there's only a finite amount of work and there seems to be more architectures, more or more architects and architectural practices popping up left, right and center. And, and to us many just, don't want to work together. It's very cutthroat. Like we'll discuss certain entities, but you know fees and a lot of that. No, no one will bring up. Um, regarding the planning situation um, with the current delays and new design guys for a particular council, many architects have commented upon the negative effects of that design guide, short sightedness, restriction on the design materials, and conform or justify, which again goes back to the objective versus subjective in the moment. Um, and it's, yeah, it changes the rule book very much to what our role is to, you know, we go from creating something to a rule book that the rule book has now changed and it's a very personal entity to the planners as well as the client and the architect. And we are finding that no one will really put their head above the parapet um, with the economic climate we're in, you know, We'd love to start an alliance and we did try to sort of do something like this, but the threat of being council blacklisted for all well, a group of architects coming together and not being able to get good work through in an area is just not worth the risk at the moment. Um, and many, many, especially the smaller practices, they can't afford to risk something like that. Um, work is too crucial to keep many practices going because the, we've cut our fees down by such a substantial amount. Do you think that architects should should be more forceful in getting paid at stage, stages um, or even up front um, to ease the late payments? Um, and you did touch on that in your sort of um, your last response. So it's probably, is there any, any more you want to sort of add on this? Because cash flow is absolutely critical to keeping a practice going. Yeah, to, to keep any business going. Um, I feel like we make it very clear in fee quotes nowadays that you know we don't progress until fees for previous stages are paid in full or you know interim payments have been paid, etc. Um, I mean, these last few years, m majority of firms, including ourselves, have you know become well started monthly or bi-monthly invoice systems where the overall balance at stage is broken down incrementally and set amounts of invoice with any outstanding balance due upon completion, especially for the larger projects, like the span between full stages can be just too long for a business model to function efficiently. efficiently. Mm. Um, also, if there are issues with non-payment with the more modern styles of fee paying, you find there's fewer non-payers because the work is instructed and then paid. And so the client is more invested. So if they've instructed an amount, it's paid in, in smaller increments. So they're not hit by a big surprise fee at the end. And they've also paid up to a certain 
point as they've instructed for changes or developments in the projects. Um, but I think, yeah, overall, I think it's it's not per se being more forceful, but being more on top of it with a business mindset. Yeah. Of making sure that the instruction has been given, making sure that the client is aware of, you know, approximate an approximation of how much something should cost or how many hours it should take. You know, I want to change a window in my house, for example, or a window type, for example, and there's 13 of these windows on five, five elevations due to the shape of the building. Well, they just think I'm just changing a window, but realistically they're changing how many drawings, if it's a building control stage, you know, how many extra calculations is it going to affect? So I think as well as being forceful, I think it's being clearer throughout to the client to make sure they're as informed as possible to make sure we do get paid and, and go from there, really. Can't, I can't disagree with any of what you've just said there. Um, I really can't. Let's move away from fees and into, um, I guess, how you're respected by clients. And I'm just interested in... Has there ever been a situation where you've ever felt bullied by a client or maybe a project manager um, to carry out duties that you were not in your appointment? Um, not in my current position. Um, we've had some challenging clients, but I think every every industry, every company has a challenging client from time to time, but you know, massively outweighed by how many good clients we have. Um, and the same that with project managers and other contractors. Um, I, many years ago, I was on, on delivering a project on site. The site manager informed me that I had to define the steel sizes and the setting out for a roof system for all the steels. Um, and it was for a £30 million project. And yeah, I certainly felt... Well, it was challenging to uh, try and get through to them that even though we were lead designer, it wasn't in our responsibilities matrix. You know, it wasn't in our contracts of work. Like the the contract, the appointment was set out. Well, it was set out for them to appoint a specialist for this. And yeah, it, it was a it was a tough one to kind of defend ourselves that you know it's not in a it's not in our expertise. It's it's not even considered under our PI. And I like joined certain elements of that project because we were quite a young design team. We were at times did feel a bit like the dumping ground for responsibility. Um, and yeah, it was tough, but and it wasn't it wasn't a particularly enjoyable situation. But I think what what going through it definitely taught me a lot of how to handle it in future. And I think there are there's always going to be. You know, in every so many projects, someone that's a bit of a challenge at times. And at the end of the day, if someone drops the ball, it's who it, who it falls to. And half the time, it's, you know, it's the architectural team, I feel like. But I will be biased because that's the side I'm on. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think there will always be, you know, a bit of this and that on, on you, know, you know, one in 10, one in 30 projects. Um, but most of that, I think, comes down to the stress that, those people are under and it's you know maybe someone has slipped up maybe the ball has been dropped and it's they're trying to they're having their higher up tell them that they need to solve a problem 
people, they're going to push it on. So if you've got the title of lead designer or lead this or CDM, you know, if you have a responsibility and they think they can push that responsibility onto you, Mm. they're going to try it because it's going to help them. (laughs) But the majority of projects throughout my lifetime so far have been, there's been challenges, but I think collectively it's trying to come together as a team to deliver and not, so I think the client, the client will find out at the end of the day if something goes pear-shaped and they don't care whose fault it is. They just want it fixed. Yeah. So I think it's working collectively and that's the best approach, really. And keeping you cool is easier said than done at times. But yeah. Keeping um, you cool. So I think people do will try and push things on others, but as long as you've got the paperwork to back it up, but also are willing to come together collectively... It's not your responsibility, but and you're not going to take responsibility for it, more importantly, but you can help with whatever that circumstance is. No, brilliant. A lot, a lot in, a lot in that reply there and um, a lot of uh, good advice, I would definitely say. My, my next question is really interested in um, your experience of entering competitions, something that a lot of uh, architects practices do um so you know what what has been your experience as a practice entering them um we've had some success over the years uh the company's been is been in business uh before me as well as since i joined thankfully um <laughs> uh, i feel success partially is due to work with some brilliant clients and contractors to deliver brilliant architecture that very much goes hand in hand um as much as through this interview, I wanted to push architects, uh, including technologists and technicians, as I think collectively uh, we need to be protected and supported as individuals and professionals. But we're all part of one overall delivery system. Ourselves, we've mainly stuck to LABC awards, Northern Design Awards, or like the mainstream awards, and with finalists as well as winners at times. I think my experience of it, it very much comes down to for us, the ones we've done well in is the delivery on site being part of the, and it being, well, the design being taken through by us, including us working on the delivery on site. So we understand the design concept as well as working with the contractors. The contractors also being teams we've worked with previously to deliver phenomenal projects, but we all kind of know how each other work in a way as well. Our experience in entering competitions has been because we've had good projects, good clients and good contractors, we've done all right and thought, well, we'll submit something because yeah. we've got a good project worth submitting. You, you win some, you lose some, but you've kind of got to be in it to win it and you've got to push the project to the client's brief as well as the design aesthetics to deliver something worth winning with. Absolutely fantastic. And and I'm just interested in how do you cope with stress relating to money? I think like many, it's something everyone approaches differently. Um, it's not something I can put my head in the sand about. Uh, I try and think outside the box. Increasing social profile posts, touching base with previous clients and contractors, uh, like assessing breaking into other areas geographically as well as architecturally with our transferable skills within the team. But I think many, including ourselves, struggle to keep, well, we struggle to sleep or switch off. Yeah. <laughs> Not giving ourselves downtime uh, to step away, reevaluate. Um, 
I think we just, many of us don't know how to step away and shut down. So much of what we do, yeah, I think so, yeah, so much of what it is, is architecture for architects is about the passion of the, for the process, profession, which is why so many of us are still in it. We live with the stress because we want to perform in many ways. Have you considered quitting? <laughs> if not, why not? Well, at times, I, I see I've, I've struggled at times with, you know, as we've discussed previously, lack of pay or recognition for what we do. Uh, not so much for me personally, but for the like more the general public looking at architects and putting us up in line with doctors and solicitors. Mm. But um, like, what to, what like what we do, it determines the environment and what it looks like in many ways. Like how we live, how we work, how we commute. Um, but if anything goes wrong, you know we're the first to blame in most instances. You know the fingers pointed at us first. Um, and so through to that, we're constantly on the defensive, high stress, long hours, minimal pay rewards with the responsibilities, architectural certificates increasing from defects period six to 30 years. For the, <laughs> the amount of additional work involved for building regs nowadays, um, additional coordination requirements, like to include all the other expertise we needed. Is the stress worth it? You know, the increased responsibility and you, I think myself and others, we do question it. Um, architecture as a theory, it's, it's, it's a wonderful career. Um, I know I may not sell it particularly well, but, you know, I do it because I love it. Yeah. Um, it's stressful, but, you know, quite a few of us do at times feel hung out to dry um, by you know, the powers that be. Um, some of us, you know, scrap our accreditation due to what we feel is increased liabilities for little return. But, you know, I'm still here because I spend a long time, well, I spent a long time working to achieve the title of architect and I'm still passionate. I still love to design and I still want to see architects succeed. Like one of the reasons I'm voicing my concerns in this discussion is, you know, if I'd lost my passion and I didn't care, uh, I'm unlikely to still be involved. Like, and, you know, I would have walked away. Like there is yeah. stress and, you know, some people won't want to do it and some people will get involved and then will walk away. But you've really got to love it to stick stick with it. And at times, I think everyone with any any job will think, why am I doing this? I could do something else that pays the same or probably more for, you know, half, the, you know, for twice the salary. Yeah. And I'll see, I'll see how long I last, but I'll, I'll do it because I love it. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change a few things, but I'd change a few others. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we're in 2023, you know, is running an architecture practice still sustainable in 2023? I mean, we're only in January while well, we just just got into just got into February, you know, but what, what's your opinion on that? Uh, I think for the residential market, a big test will be in the ability to gain approval for beautiful buildings um, as set by Mr. Gove. Uh, the loss of the housing targets for local authorities, but most importantly, post-2025, the effect of the revised building regulations. I think we're uh, among with discussing with contractors as well. The biggest fear is the cost of construction. You know, will that outweigh the value of completed projects? And you know, that would, it would just decimate the market. 
Um, I think it'll be interesting to see, like, if there is work for an architectural practice, like, especially bespoke architectural practice in 2026. Um, like currently, unless you know you're part of frameworks involved or heavily involved with contractors, government schemes, or have specialised in in a particular avenue, or just have very low overheads, the chance to survive is only going to get worse without some form of intervention or collaboration. Um, and I do feel currently with the race to the bottom, it is resulting in some of the work that we are seeing declining because so many people are trying to strip so they can, you know, have fees that can compete. I think there are many ways that small practices can still be sustainable, but I think it's a change of mentality to what and service of what the architect was believed to be and do. Wow. <laughs> Getting to the end of uh, this uh, podcast and it's my, I always want to end on a positive note and also I'm interested in really what advice you would give to an architect who wants to do great work um, but also wants to make a comfortable living? Tough question, I know, but um, yeah, yeah um, interested in your answer. You're putting me on the spot for positivity is um, <laughs> clearly clearly one, one for that. But yeah, I think I'm trying to be critical of the profession, but there are, there's, there are so many positives I've not touched on. But yeah, most architects I know at the moment, they've got, they've got a side hustle from property to a successful partner or are looking to reach a position where they can transfer into project management or consultancy. Uh, I think we're entering a period where outside influences will redefine the role of architect very much. The PI market has yet to respond to challenges set out into, in the Defective Premises Act and the Building Safety Act. Um, I can foresee them limiting their exposure to potential claims by curtling our role as architects, for example. Are we the best people placed to carry out site inspections? The definition of great work is wide, um, yeah. but in terms of breaking the mould and looking for a future-proofing mentality, providing unique architecture in a forward-thinking design style or get into a big firm with high liability lots of bread and butter work and see what work you can do on the r d side or have a have a real income with a pension normal stress levels proper working hours and have architecture as a passionate hobby in some ways advice wise personally the amount of Responsibility, stress, long hours and limited monetary reward does kill elements of the passion for, I think, many architects I've spoken to. But, you know, if you can look in the mirror and feel passionately that you can make it to the top or at least make a difference, you know, give architects and our sector back a lot of its professional integrity, bloody go for it. Mm. Um, like, it is, it is a career and... A mindset of passion that that I think you have to have to to progress and to get through. Um, it is a, in many ways it's a wonderful career, it's a creative career, but there are a lot of challenges, especially at the moment with how much the the role of the architect is changing, has changed, and will change in the near future. Um, so yeah, that might not be the most positive response <laughs> it's an honest response um, yeah but i think that a lot of people go into architecture and i've heard in previous interviews that 
you know, architecture schools are full to the brim. How many of these students are A, like many of my peers, didn't continue through the masters and you know, um, how many of them are going to do that? But how many of them know what they're getting into? Um, and I think it's if there is one piece of advice, if you, you know, if you're currently studying, go speak to architects, go make sure that you're, you know, if there's a particular avenue or particular sector you're involved in, go speak to people in that sector, get them early because it's, it can be tough out there. And if you want to get stuck in and really find out what it's all about, you've got to get stuck in as early as you can in your career. And don't be shy of moving practices. I think some practices, well, all practices, you know, they'll all have little differences and some practices have big differences. Just make sure you're always being challenged. What many people I know have tried to do to be successful, I think that goes across the board in any industry. If you feel like you're plateauing, look for your change or how to step up. No, th thank, thank you so much for your time. Um, this, you know, this evening, I really appreciate your honesty. It's been a fantastic, honest discussion that we've had tonight. You know, just, just really thank you for being on the Broke Architect podcast. Let's, let's hope that a lot more profitable and less broke in the future. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jason. No, thank you so much. I think it was a very, very honest, re, you know, response and interview to this. So that's what we're all about. We're, we're, we're about discovering the uh, real voices and the truth bit of, you know behind your experience and you're a, a director of a practice so that's uh, that's just a really um really fantastic episode and thank you so much now i'd just like to say something about the architects benevolent society this is a society that is dedicated to supporting past and present members of the architectural community and their families in times of need from those starting out on their careers to those who are now in retirement. They help people who have experienced illness, accident, redundancy, unemployment, bereavement or other personal difficulties. Now support ranges from confidential advice to financial assistance. Now my um, ask to you all who's listening is consider giving a donation and um, there's many ways you can do this and you can even volunteer for the ABS and even fundraise and also you can also leave a gift in your will so who do the architects benevolent society help well architects architectural technologists landscape architects and employees of architectural practices but also uh, the dependents of, um, of, of the professions I've just stated there. They also um, help and support students of architecture, architectural technology or landscape architecture. Now for more information on eligibility and to apply for help, please go to the ABS website, which is absnet.org.uk. Thank you. Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. The Broke Architect. The Broke Architect.
Okay.